Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Used to it used to be just like one, you know, and uh, but now there are so many different diverse Bible reading programs that can kind of get you on board. Uh, that'd be great. Now, my recommendation is to find one where you read both Old and New Testament, uh, because if you just always read the New Testament, it's kind of like getting in the middle of the movie. You're going to be that person that says, "Who is that? Why is that happening?" Because really, the Old Testament is the backstory for the New Testament, and so it's important to have both, and so uh, uh, just think about that as you're headed toward the beginning of the year, uh, everybody making their, you know, resolutions, or their, I'm going to do better at things, uh, don't forget about your Bible reading programs, and your, your prayer programs, and uh, whatever works for you as far as time of day, you know, if it's morning, if it's before you go to bed at night, find the time, it might take jostling around a little bit to find the time that works for you, it might be reading your Bible on your lunch hour, it, it, it can be at various times, Amen. Just find what works and uh, get on that horse and drive it till pants. All right. Amen. So Esther chapter number eight. I'm going to read just a few verses of scripture here to get us started. And uh, we're going to attempt again uh, to get through this chapter. And uh, again, I'm thinking maybe by the, the last Wednesday of this month that I might be finishing up on the last Wednesday of this month. And that's taken into consideration. Candlelight that's just a couple of weeks from tonight it's crazy to say that just a couple weeks from tonight be our candlelight service on that day you've been standing apologize on that day did the king ahasuerus give the house of haman the jews enemy unto esther the queen and mordecai came before the king for esther had told what he was unto her and the king took off his ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. For a little while tonight, I want to talk to you about creeds of conversion. Creeds of conversion. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you tonight, God, for those who have, Lord, made their way here, have purposely and intentionally come to the house of God tonight. Lord, we continue to pray for all those that are battling sicknesses, Lord, of varying types. We pray, God, for healing, and we pray, God, for understanding tonight. God, by your word, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray, amen. You may be seated today in Jesus' name. Here in the book of Esther for the past few chapters, the narrative of the story has slowed immensely. Started around about chapter number six, the narrative slowed down uh, really, really, really slowly. So to recount a little bit what happened, uh, the same night that the gallows were made, the king could not sleep. The following day, Haman goes to talk to the king for the purpose of hanging Mordecai and ends up then doing the parade to honor, uh, honor Mordecai. And then the king and Haman both go to the second banquet that Esther has invited them to. Esther kind of describes that somebody has plotted against her people. Uh, the king is infurious and leaves, and Mordecai pleads for his life to no avail. And finally, last week, he dies on his own gallows, and that all happens within one day. So the narrative, and that started in chapter 6. So that's 6, 7, and now here we are in 8, that on that day, we're still in the same day. And so we've covered several chapters and verses. Uh, the narrative has just come to a standstill of everything that is going on. And so we must notice, though, tonight in this story, whenever we consider Haman, although he's dead, I still want to talk about him a little bit. You still talk about people after they're dead, right? Amen. And so although he is dead, we need to understand that Haman does, to a certain degree, foreshadow our adversary that we still have yet today. For that matter, he even foreshadows uh, the Antichrist that is to come because he is pictured in the story of Esther as a very uh, formidable uh, foe against God's people. And so that pictures well with the Antichrist. That pictures well with our adversary, uh, O Slufet, the devil, amen, as a foe against God's people today. And for that matter, there is a reversal of what he desires. There's a reversal of what Haman desires. Remember, he, 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 his invention that he comes up with of these gallows, so to speak, uh, they are the very things that hang him. And so we fast forward then into uh, the New Testament Scripture and the very scheme that was for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ of putting him on a cross that very scheme of, uh, of killing him and murdering him was also the means by which the serpent's head was bruised, according to Scripture. And so uh, we have this, this mirrored all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, chapter number 3, where the Scripture spoke how her seed and his seed, speaking of the serpent's seed, would be in conflict uh, for the eons of time. From the beginning, it was stated. Genesis 3.15, I think we have it for your uh, looking, the the Lord said, I will put enmity between thee, speaking to Eve, and, or the serpent rather, and the woman, and between thy seed, the serpent seed, and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so we see pictured in Haman a little bit of that adversary, a little bit of that antichrist. He's against God's people. Things were reversed upon him, and what they even intended bad for the Lord really intended good. It bruised uh, the, the serpent's head. Now the Bible says on that day, again, we're continuing this day that never ends, like daylight savings wasn't 
going on or something, or it was, <laughs> and then anything. So it's like the longest day. Uh, but on that day, Haman was hung. And it's referring again to the same day that Mordecai should have been hung, but he wasn't. And so Esther was given, the Bible says in the first few verses, that Esther was given the household or the estate of Haman, all right, her enemy. She's given the estate of her enemy. Uh, there must have been a very sense of, I don't know, a sense of pride, a sense of accomplishment, uh, like a little twisting of the sword in the abdomen type of feeling uh, toward her foe, being able to acquire that. And in addition to acquiring that, the Bible says that uh, the relationship between her and Mordecai is conveyed. It's made known that that they are cousins and that Mordecai basically raised Esther. The KJV, King James Version, states it like this, that Esther had told what he, speaking to Mordecai, had told what he was unto her. And no doubt that could relate to her saying, yeah, that's my cousin, or he reared me and raised me. I didn't have mom and dad, all of that. Uh, it seems that this statement almost seems to go beyond just informing the king uh, that they had uh, family relations between, between one another, which that was conveyed. But nonetheless, I think also the fact that she is saying, this is what he was to me. She, she seemed to be conveying what Mordecai even meant to her, not just relation, but what he meant to her. And uh, in that little statement there, if there's anything that we can pull for application for our own lives, it would be this, that it's essential not to forget the people that help get you where you are whenever recognition and benefits start to flow your direction. Because if there's ever a time to forget that, it's whenever those things are happening. You get this idea that maybe you have arrived and you forget the people that held you up and propped you up to help you get to where you are. And so she's explaining what Mordecai meant unto her. Uh, was he imperfect? Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wasn't perfect. We've already stated enough things in this study to realize that. But nonetheless, she remembered him regardless. Uh, he was, again, for instance, the imperfection. He was the one that told her to, you know, shield or hide her identity as a Jew. But remember, several chapters back, he was also the one in the Scripture, the Bible says, that he raised her as Hadassah. He raised her as her Hebrew name. He raised her as a Hebrew from the beginning, although there was this flip and change in his life. And so she wants to let him, the king, know what he meant unto her. And so with these things on her heart and these things on her mind, I believe then that she mentioned this all, of course, to the king, as it would seem. And as a result of these things, perhaps, as a result of these things, telling, telling what Mordecai meant to her, uh, the Bible speaks that she also makes him manager of her newly acquired estate that she got of Haman's. And so here's the king. He's, he's of course, uh, on the sidelines in certain means, and he's listening to everything that she has to say. She's, he's seeing all of this. I've just given her the estate. He, she's made him manager over the estate. He's taking all of this in. And there's some other things that Ahasuerus has witnessed concerning Mordecai. Again, we've looked at this before, but let me tie into it uh, tonight. That, again, we realize all throughout Mordecai's uh, time here, even in Persia, we've constantly seen him where? At the king's gate, right? At his placement, at his station. Ahasuerus, no doubt, has picked up on that as well. Uh, he, he realizes that uh, he has honored uh, the, uh, Mordecai, 
just the day before he is on, or I guess, yeah, the same day, earlier in the day. <laughs> He's honored Mordecai uh, for tipping off uh, Esther and those that needed to be uh, notified that there were some people that was looking at assassinating him and taking him out. He realizes this is the same man that did that. And so all these things are fresh on his mind as Esther is even saying what Mordecai meant unto her. And all of this seems to cause a little bit of a dynamic shift even within King Ahasuerus himself. The things that he knows about Mordecai, the things that's just been shared about him. Because what we have here, if we just for a moment, Let's forget all the other players in the story of Esther and let's focus on King Ahasuerus just for a moment. He's a pagan king, right? Heathenistic pagan king. But the scripture tells us right here in this moment, following this moment, that the ring, and this is just my wedding band, but the signet ring that he had given, Ahasuerus had given to Haman. Now Haman's dead. He's taken that back from Haman. He now gives that same ring unto Mordecai. All right? Big deal, right? Well, the fact of the matter is having this ring, I, I can't take this on and off like that. I, I get soap in there. Someone go get me some soap. Um, but having, having this ring, here's what we must understand. Whoever had the ring, the, the ring of Ahasuerus, had the authority over Ahasuerus's life because that's what that ring was a symbol of. It gave authority of the king's life to that individual. Follow me here. So whenever this was given to Haman, Haman had the authority of Ahasuerus' life because he had that ring. He dictated a decree then with that ring. Authority of Ahasuerus' life in Ahasuerus' name. And in retrospect, he... he, he Ahasuerus probably would not have given his ring, right, to Haman if he had known all the details of the decree. But nonetheless, he gave that to Haman, thus given Haman the authority over and in his life. What I'm saying is, though, then there was something that was concocted that Haman did with the authority in Ahasuerus' life that Ahasuerus, looking back, really did not agree with. The fact of the matter is this, on a real level today, that's what happens when you give another the authority of your life. And you got to be careful who you give that to. Now, we've already discussed, Haman looks much like a picture of our adversary. He gave his ring to Haman. He gave the authority of his life to Haman. And Haman does with that as he pleases. Seemingly without even the, the, the uh, uh, full discretion and open form about exactly what he was doing with a hazardous. He gives that. And so people give their rings all the time, if I may say it like this. People give their rings or people give the authority of their lives to gods of this world every day. People give the authority of their life to other people, amen, the gods of this world every day. And you know what happens? They make choices and decisions on their behalf that the person, that, the person whose authority that is that they gave away regret that they ever did. You hear me? So they go along with it, right? This is what we do when we give... I'm going to allow the... I'm going to give my ring to the enemy. I'm going to give my ring, my authority of my life to the adversary. 
And what happens is this. The adversary, he gives me just enough details without giving me full-fledged details. So I'll go alone. So that I'll go alone with whatever he's planning. It sounds okay. Everything seems snuff. It sounds like it's in the best interest, right? Because there is a group of people, O oh, king, they're not, they're not listening to you and they're not blah. They might be a threat, blah, blah. That sounds good. But that's not completely honest. But what are you going to do now? Because you've given the authority over your life to this one. Hmm? You're giving the authority of your life to this one. And so that was the story of Ahasuerus with Haman. Nonetheless, he's surveying everything now concerning Mordecai. Mordecai has stayed faithful at the king's gate when everything happened. He interceded for the king's life when he wasn't even possibly aware that there were assassins that were lurking around the kingdom. And whenever Ahasuerus had taken that authority back from Haman because Haman is dead and taking that, here I am again, taking that authority back from Haman because Haman is dead, taking that ring back, he heard of another man, according to Esther, what he meant unto her. And he knows what he meant to him personally by keeping his post and by interceding for him when he didn't even know there was danger. And so Ahasuerus takes what was in the hands of Haman known in Esther as the notable enemy, and now places it in the hand of Mordecai and says, I'm going to allow you to have the power and the authority in my life. Now, I understand tonight that sometimes uh, in Scripture, whenever we talk about types, when I say types, uh, there's Old Testament characters that are kind of like a type of New Testament characters. For instance, uh, King David is notably, and Joseph, a type of Christ. But as with all types, uh, they are not flawless, okay? You cannot correlate every aspect of their life. What do you mean? I mean this. David supposed to be a type of Christ. David committed adultery. Okay? So where's that fulfilled in the life of Christ? You know what I'm saying? So types, there's only sections and portions of the life that may be applicable as a type. They are not always flawless. You can't take every aspect of their life. But at very least, concerning the Hazarus, I believe we can typify that the life of Christ is found in these even limited aspects of the character, if I were to do a type with Mordecai, that they're found limited in Mordecai because the question we must ask ourselves is who are you going to give the authority over your life to? Who are you going to give the say-so of your life to? Is it going to be a Haman or is it going to be someone more along the lines of a Mordecai? Is it going to be enemy or is it going to be a confidant? Okay? And so last week, whenever we finish, I got to hurry. I got a lot of ground to cover tonight. Amen. Let me get like an old bull here and get my... Go for the red banners back there. But nonetheless, last week we left and there's a little bit of a cliffhanger because Haman's dead, but not everything is taken care of, right? Haman's dead. Amen. But the threat of, of the slaughtering of the Jews is still very much so on its way. It's just a few months out. And so uh, we got to do something about that. And what that tells us is this, kind of like a little side note, is that the influence of a person's life can long survive even after they're dead. The Bible says that Abel was dead, and yet he still spake. 
And what that tells the application for us is this. We got to be purposeful how we live our lives now. Because we're not just impacting the generation we live in. But quite possibly we are impacting future generations for better or for worse. It can, that influence can go in either direction. Influences is just not, you know, colored negative or just colored positive. It can be in either direction. And so the consequences of the choices we make in our lives may still have impact on others after we're dead. That the consequences of your life don't necessarily die when you die. Someone just nod, just a good nod is just fine with me. Amen. And so uh, instance of that is Hezekiah's king. He's get, he has this disease. He's turned his face toward the wall. He weeps, cries out to God, oh, God, oh, I don't want to have this. Isaiah tells him the Lord's going to lengthen your, your years by, by 15 years. Yay. Some people had heard that he was sick. Notably, it was people from the east. It was the Babylonians. They came. They'd written a letter. They're so concerned. They come to visit him. He shows them his house, shows him his prized things, his most precious treasures. And Isaiah comes to him and says, what have you done? He said, well, there's people from the east come. that's concerned about me. I was sick. I showed them all the treasures. He said, in the days of the future, he said, these same people, the Babylonians, are going to come and strip everything from you, even take your sons and your daughters. And he basically like, well, that's going to happen in the future? Yeah. It's not going to happen in my day? Yeah. So everything's well? Everything's good. Everything's fine. In other words, he made a choice then that a future generation would pay the consequence of. Made a choice then that a future generation. So we got to be uh, very considerate about the way that we live our lives. And so Haman still have an impact, right? That threat is out there. And so Esther goes ahead and she addresses the king another time about this unfinished business. And uh, it appears as though the king thinks even perhaps everything is well because he reiterates in verse number seven. He says, well, Haman's been taken care of. We got him on the gallows. It's like, yeah. And Haman may be dead, but that doesn't cancel that doesn't cancel the fact that on a specific date, the Jews are going to be attacked to death, all right? We still got this to deal with. And so Esther was, was asking that the decree of Haman be reversed, is the wording in, in verse number five, that the decree of Haman would be reversed. But as we know, all throughout Esther, this has been stated more than once, that this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, right? Which cannot be altered. Therefore, Ahasuerus recommends, he says, write another decree. The, the decree that is there is there. He said, but write another decree, and this decree that you write allowed the Jews to defend themselves. You see that in verse number 11, and avenge themselves. That's verse number 13. Just write another one. If we can take all of this decree, and I don't want to call it a mess, all this decree situation, and raise it to a spiritual level, I would say this. As, as people that have been born into sin as sinners, here is the fact of the matter. Dismissing the devil from our lives does not eradicate the sin of our lives. Hmm? Dismissing him doesn't eradicate this, what has happened up to that moment of ones that have been born into sin. Sin and sins, all right? Sin by nature and sins, things we've committed since we've been born, right? Because there's some different dynamics. You're born into sin. That's a condition. That's a, that's a nature. 
but you also sin as far as actions. Right? And so both of those things still need to be dealt with. Although we've, we've, we've taken our ring back from the adversary, so to speak. Although we've removed the power and the authority from, of the adversary in our life, those things still have to be dealt with. And so there is a law that's been active ever since the beginning, ever since the Garden of Eden. There is a law. All right? And, and, and it all started regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's like basically this. If you partake of the tree, you're going to die. All right? And so it is, as New Testament Scripture references, it was the law of sin and death. There is a law. And really, to look at it, the purpose of the law of sin and death, the purpose of the law all the way back in the garden wasn't for death, it was for life. What are you talking about, Brother McGee? That was there to let them know Abstain from that so you live. Huh? It wasn't for the purpose for them to die. It was for them to live. So the purpose of the law was for life. It, it was there to help people, uh, namely Adam and Eve, to align themselves in their life in, in a life of vowing way that they're just going to they're, they're turn their head away from that. All right? That's what it was. But sin... Sin will take the same law of life and death that was supposed to be for life. Sin will take the same law and bring death. What happens? Sin misuses the law. Hmm? Any law that you talk of in the Old Testament, all the thou shalt not, thou shalt not steal, that's not for your detriment. That's for your life. That's for your good. But sin uses it so that when you do step over, guess what? Not a good outcome, not a good consequence. Not a good result. It misuses it. And here's the fact of the matter. The law of sin and death, it does not change. Just like the first decree in Esther could not be changed. It does not change. The law of sin and death hasn't changed since it began. It's still there. It's still relevant. So the only answer is you can't reverse it. You have to have another law that supersedes it. You have to have another law that supersedes it. And what that is, according to the Apostle New Testament Scripture, it is the law of the Spirit. So we, in the first decree, if I can state it like that, we have the law of sin and death. In the second decree, we have the law of the Spirit. Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 8 and verse number 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me, what, free from the law of sin and death. And so in Esther... The Bible says in the second degree, decree, not degree, the people was going to be able to stand for their lives. They were going to be able to stand for themselves and defend themselves. Amen. Someone say amen. But when we look at this in comparison to the gospel story, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the gospel story isn't us standing for ourselves as much as it is another standing for ourselves that we might live. Another who was made in the same likeness as we were, made of the same fabric of humanity as we were, that would stand for us that we might live. And so very loosely, again, types, very loosely, very loosely we see the type of Esther identifying with a people. She identifies with her people, and it seems to save them from total annihilation and destruction just as Christ becoming one of us Huh? Not the form, not the form of, 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 of the hierarchy of kingship, but the form of a servant of the seed of Abraham. 
amen, identifying with us for what purpose? To save the world. Now, here's the difference. Again, talking about the difference in a type, and it doesn't just cooperate 100%. The difference is this. Esther finally identified with what she was by birth, while Christ became what he had not formerly been. God came in the likeness as a man. And that had been his plan from the beginning, but it wasn't executed until it was needed, right? And so again, if we look backwards, if we look backwards at the turning of the events, was God given the, the, the king a sleepless night? We looked at that weeks ago. You remember the little chiastic structure and all that? Probably no one remembers that. But anyway, that, that turning point, God was giving the king a sleepless night but also we have here Esther is identifying with her people. And her identifying with the people helps group her with those then that are going to be saved. Therefore, in Esther, it isn't that we cannot again make lines of connection and find types in the book of Esther because we can. But the fact is we can't go too far in any direction without the impact of it falling apart, all right? So we can't say, well, Mordecai represents this and Esther represents it just straight across the line because it's going to be fallible. It's going to be fallible to some degree. There are shades of meaning, but it will be fallible. Now look at this, Esther chapter number 8 and verse 9. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers of the provinces which are from India unto Ethiopia, 127 provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by post on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 20th month, which is in the month of Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published to all people that the Jews should be ready against the day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the post that rode upon mules and camels went out being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. Amen. So the king basically told them, all right, you got, you got the authority over my life, Mordecai. You, you, and Esther, you just write whatever decree you want to write, seal it with my ring, my name. And whenever he said, ye, write ye also the ye there, the you there is plural. He was referring to Esther and he was referring to Mordecai. He says, you do just whatever you want to do in order to uh, supersede this other decree to get an upper hand. And so Mordecai then dictates to the scribes what should be written. It was written on the 23rd day of the third month. 
Interestingly enough, when this was written, it's written about two months and ten days since the last decree was written. And with that being said, then we're about mm, approximately nine months away from death day. All right. We're nine months away from death day as this is being written when they're going to be attacked. And so, again, the Jews, this is what was uh, prescribed in the second decree. They are allowed to defend themselves from attack. And this can only happen on one day, the day that the original decree was made for the 13th day of the 12th month. They could do this on one day. The Jews were particularly only supposed to counterattack anybody that attacked them, all right? They're, they're not necessarily supposed to be go out on a war loop and just slay and kill them, but if people were attacking, they were to defend. They had the proper right to do so, and they could do to their enemies what was planned to be done to them, uh, to, to destroy, to annihilate, to kill. There's three different verbs there that are, that are spoken of what they could do to them, and they could spoil them, uh, spoil them for, for the prey. And so there's a grand controversy. I won't get too deep in it, but I think it's important to mention. But a great controversy, scholarly controversy from verse number 11, the way that translators handle this. Because let me read it to you one more time. Wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together, to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women and we could go on reading it translator handled this a few different way some say as you can read it right here that the jews could then kill the women and children that seems to be the straight way that it is stated right here in their defense they could they could kill the women and children and yet there's others that write it as though the jews could defend their own women and children if they came under attack the reason why there's this big controversy is because in our present day, people have a hard time imagining that God can sanction the destruction of women and children. However, we've got to put all things in context. We've got to put all battles in context of Old Testament for that matter because there's a lot of battles that happen in the Old Testament. Guess what? It's not just men losing their lives. It's women, even women with children, meaning with child, even children themselves that are losing their lives. There are a lot of battles, a lot of wars that God's people fought in that required the death of all lives. Case in point, 1 Samuel 15.3, back to the old Amalekite, Agagite thing, debacle. Look at it there. Whenever uh, Saul was told to utterly destroy them, it said, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man, look, it tells us quite frankly, and woman and infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And they were like, in today's world, people cannot even wrap their mind around. How could a, a loving God take the life of men and women and children? And this is the commandment of the Lord that's prescribed here, that the women and children would be slaughtered but what we must understand is Amalek was an adversary to the Jews, to God's people. Therefore, they were an adversary to God, and they had to be eliminated. Remember, these are the ones that whenever uh, the Israelites first came out of Egyptian bondage, these were the first to attack them. And so why is this significant in the Old Testament for the slaughtering of all? Number one, they are against God and God's people, but also you must understand this. Christ isn't born yet. And God's redemptive purposes were bound to his covenant people. Some lady from the Jewish people was going to have a son. 
that goes back to the throne of David, that goes back to the tribe of Judah. Uh huh. That would be the savior of the people. So, in the Old Testament, it wasn't so much that God is taking some vendetta out on a race of people or a certain selection or type or ethnic group of people. It's that God was basically taking a vendetta out upon sin and wickedness of the people. Because if you let one of them survive, if they were attackers, if they as a group were attackers of my people and me before, they are going to be that. And so we can't let none survive. we got to have a zero-tolerance policy, right? Because the very initiator, the very savior of the world, the one who would take away the sins of the world, are going to come through his people. We, at this point, we don't know the woman. We don't know which one's going to have that virgin birth. But we know that she's going to be tied to David's throne, and it's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Because that's prophecy. That's what he said it would be. It would be David's throne. It would be the tribe of Judah. And so anybody that's against then his covenant people, if they're trying to wipe them all out, we have to have zero tolerance because through this is the Savior being born. The one that's going to eradicate all the wrong of the world. And so in the Old Testament time, it was by slaughtering them all. It goes all the way back again, as I've told you before, to the blessing that God spoke upon Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, right? I'll bless who blesses you. I'll curse who curses you. And he spoke these words that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so if anybody's trying to wipe out the Jewish people that Father Abraham is the father of, he says, I can't stand for that because they are the people through which all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And that was up mostly fulfilled when Christ Jesus was born. There's glimpses of that as them being a blessing to others through themselves as a nation, but that was ultimately fulfilled when Christ is born. Because of him, all the families of the earth can be blessed. Huh? You know that. Mm-hmm. Because you know what his birth, uh-huh, and then having been born again has done for your own life and your own families. And so that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so when God had his people operate in these and what a lot of people would call them are holy wars, you may have heard that terminology before, these holy wars of the Old Testament, as they're often called again, it wasn't a race. It wasn't necessarily an ethnic group. He's fighting against sin. He is fighting against wickedness that could even proliferate into the lives of his Jewish people, right? Because lo and behold, if I, if, I, if I give the okay to this and I allow this to remain, it could have influence on my people, and that's what not, not what they're there for. They're there to be a, a, a pleasure and a blessing to all of the earth through which Christ is going to come. So I, the best way to safeguard them is to eliminate the people and to show that it wasn't him just taking it out upon, you know, the Amalekites or the Moabites, there were times in Scripture that God was that severely tough on his own people. When they stooped to the level of practicing heathen things and paganistic things, he turned them over, the Bible says, to their oppressors. That's the book of Judges. Over and over again, he's turning them over to their oppressors. Why? They had went to a level of being heathens. He wasn't against a race, not a nation, but he's against the sin and the wickedness that's cropping up. Huh? Even if it was a found among his covenant people. Now, we no longer wipe out nations or children and wives. 
because of the sin issue or because of the wickedness issue. We no longer do that because we live in a different dispensation of time, right? Because in that time, we're living under what's known the dispensation of the law. But now we're living under the dispensation of grace. And for one, now we're living in a time we're not without the Christ child. We're not without the one that was born of the throne room of David and the tribe of Judah. We have Jesus Christ. And now sin and wickedness of humanity are dealt with by how? The sacrifice that took place at Calvary took care of that. Old Testament, we didn't have a sufficient sacrifice to deal with the sin and wickedness, right? Wasn't. But now in this dispensation, the dispensation that we live, we have a ample means of dealing with it. It's not slaughter, amen. Only one man had to suffer that for sin and wickedness, amen, in order to eliminate it. The Bible says he took the handwritings of the ordinances that were against us and nailed them to the tree, right? So we're living under this dispensation of grace, but the handwritings of the ordinances that were against us. Oh, against us, yes. The ones that are against you are the ones that you've broken. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That doesn't even phase you unless you've committed adultery. Hmm? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. All the different laws of the scripture, it's not even against you. Men, in reality, again, it is for your safekeeping, for your life. It's only against you if you've broken it. Hmm? Amen. Matter of fact, many of the curses that we see in Scripture, it's not a curse against you. It's about whenever you break, whenever you break ties with the blessing, it becomes a curse to you. Amen. When you break ties with the blessing, it becomes a curse to you. Again, so all these laws are for you unless you fail to abide by them. And guess what? Good old great humanity. We've all failed to a certain degree in some aspect of the law. And so the handwritings, there are some handwritings that and ordinances that are against us, the ones in which we failed in. But here's the fact. What? The law cannot be changed. Oh, no. Yeah, the law cannot be changed. But it can be fulfilled by Christ, who both kept it and also accepted the punishment for any that failed in it. And therefore, by him, the law is both satisfied and we are justified by his grace. Verse number 15, we're going to do it in Jesus' name. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. I love that for some reason. And many of the people of the land became Jews. Please catch that. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them. So just like before, 
going to get the decree written by all the scribes. They'll get on their mules, their horses, their dromedaries, their cats and dogs, whatever they had, you know. But anyway, they're getting all these different beasts, and they're being sent out to all the different provinces. Shushan, even the capital, is going to get the order. And uh, notice, though, as Mordecai comes forth, he's in all this grand royal garb, right? I mean, look at the description there. He's got, I mean... The royal blue and white and great crown of gold. And what you need to do is contrast that with what he had after the first decree. The first decree, it's old itchy sackcloth and he's mourning. After the second decree, it's the blue and the linen and the bling bling royal apparel. Amen. That is upon him after the second decree. As a matter of fact, after the first decree, look at the contrast. First decree, the Bible says, when Shushan heard about this, they were perplexed or they were confused. But here, the second decree comes to Shushan and the Bible says they are rejoicing and they are glad. And so there's some notable changes. If I can say it like this, there are some notable changes when people claim their rightful identity. And the Jews are even responding the same. The first decree in all the provinces, they were mourning. They were putting on their sackcloth, right? But after the second one, in every province, the Bible says they are rejoicing. The Amplified Classic Version says it like this, that the Jews had a light, a dawn of a new hope with the second decree. Amen. They're glad in every province. Look what they're doing. They're glad. They're rejoicing. They're joyful. What makes me laugh for whatever reason? Have a good day. All right? They celebrate with a feast. And look what the Bible says. We cannot miss this in verse 17. Many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews came upon them. The message says it's like this. It was dangerous not to be a Jew. Just allow me to meander here just a little bit in this. The verb stem for, used for the word became, that the people of the land became Jews, in verse 17, in Hebrew is sometimes, sometimes, I want to emphasize that, used for feigning an action rather than a genuine action itself. The Net Bible then says it like this, that the people of the land pretended to be Jews, feigning as though they're something that they're not. And we read just very straightly because of the fear of the Jews filled up fell upon them and we do this with fear all the time in scripture the fear of the lord like we're like fear lord but that's not the interpretation in those it's being in awe of god right as a matter of fact commentary author deborah reed reminds us this fear of the jews can easily refer to the awe or the healthy respect the people had for the jews mean that when the scripture says that the people of the land became jews because they had a healthy respect and awe for the Jews. What are you saying? I'm saying, listen, folks, there is more here on the line than just a new decree that's come. That's, there's more than just on the line. All these people of this empire, you know what they're seeing? Do you know what they're seeing? In these same Jews where there's mourning, there's rejoicing. In these same Jews that wore sackcloth or now they're celebrating they're having a good day there's gladness they're not fasting they're feasting there's celebration why due to the, legis the legislation that had taken place 
And these Jews, according to the decree, have been given the right to defend themselves on such and such day. And this type of jubilation is happening across the land because they've been given a right on a day still yet in the future to defend themselves. What do you say? People of Persia are taking notice. They mourned in sackcloth the first time, and they rose from there and fasted. Now it's a feast. Now it's a party. And yet the day, D-Day, death day, D-Day has not even came yet. They've not even been able to defend themselves yet, but they're this jubilant over just the idea of being able to do that. When it gets there, there's something then about these people. Listen to me. There's something about these people that they fear or they respect and that they honor in a certain awe. That as a spectator, they're in awe of how just a change of legislation, all the, it's not all played out yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not all played out yet. That day has not happened. The end results have not come in yet. But they're jubilant. They're joyful. They're glad. Brother McGee, are you saying that no one pretended to be a Jew? I'm not saying that at all. There may have been some that pretended to be a Jew. But what I am saying is this. Among those who pretended, there were also others that were truly converted that decided from this moment on, I'm going to become a Jew. In reality, it's no less than today. There's people that pretend to be Christian, and there's others that have truly dedicated and given themselves to that. But here's the ironic thing, and I'll close very quickly. Here's the ironic thing. Please stay with me. Esther, she's hid her identity. She's kept a low profile for a long time by being just like the other Persians of the Persian Empire. But once she claims her identity and her people receive word that they could defend themselves, Persians are now becoming Jews. They are now wanting to become what Esther had been hiding herself from as being all alone. They want to forsake now their identity and want to become like her. I don't think this is coincidence. I don't think this is happenstance that not long after she claimed who she really was, others decided that they wanted to be like that too. Because it's hard to subscribe to your identity, Brother Zach, when you're already trying to pretend like who I am. Does someone hear me right now? Why be like you when you're already just like me? But whenever she claimed who she really was and they could all take in all everything that was going on, there's a sense of respect, a sense of awe. And many Jews, many, many of the people of the land became Jews because of their all fear, rever, and respect of the people. Think here for a moment. Within the Persian Empire, there were about 15 million Jews that's 15 million Jews among 100 million people 
approximately in the Persian Empire at that time. And yet the scripture says, and many of the people of the land became Jews. What are you saying? 15 million among 100 million? The odds ain't really in their favor. But you don't need to be in the odds of your favor if you just stay in the favor of God. I feel the cloud of his presence rolling. Stand with me. Man. Can we just raise our hands to the Lord right now? God, I love you. Holy, 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 holy. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. God, what type of impact, God, could we have, Lord, in our setting? What type of impact could we have in our context, Lord, in our world? God, if we will unbashedly, Lord, claim God and practice exactly who you are and what you are. God, would it strike all? Would it strike, Lord, a certain level of respect in the eyes of those around us in so much that they would say, I want to leave who I have been, and I want what they have, and I want to become as they are. I pray, O oh Lord, tonight, God, let this penetrate our hearts and our minds. Help us, God, to live, Lord, carefully, circumspectly, as the Scripture says, Lord, before you, God, for there is a nation, God, there are people, God, that are looking, God, the Bible says we are epistles written and read of all men. I pray, oh Lord, somebody is reading the, the very dialogue of our lives, Lord, and they're looking for hope. God, help us, Lord Jesus, to be as that old nation, that covenant people that's still, Lord, trying to connect people to God as the church. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, and the church say amen. Hallelujah. Ladies, come back here tomorrow night, 6.30. If you're not signed up, things on there. Adults, come back here Friday night. Amen. If you're a woman and an adult, you get, you get BOGO, you know. Uh, but anyway, come Friday as well, and we'll have food. And if you're not signed up for food, the list is back there. That also starts at 6.30. Wear a horrible sweater, nice-looking sweater. I don't remember all the categories. Have a sweater on. Amen. It can even have a pool in it. I don't care. Amen. It could be stained, Sister Moen, by all five. Come on now. Amen. Just come, and we'll have a good time. Amen. God bless you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.